0: Hi, I'm Kirk Magoo, host of New Books in Politics. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes store or any of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Are you an academic who wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on how to use your intellectual authority to do so at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You'll find the link below. And now, onto to this week's episode. Hi. Today, my guest is Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spiked, the online magazine based in London, but speaking to the world. He's one of Britain's most controversial, thoughtful, and polarizing commentators. He's written for The Spectator, The New Statesman, BBC News Online, The Christian Science Monitor, The American Conservative, Salon, Rising East, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, The Big Issue, The Australian in Sydney, and The Sun. Today, he joins us on New Books in Politics to speak about his 2018 book, Anti-Woke. Welcome, Brendan. Hi, Kirk. How's it going? Great, great. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, let's start off with a kind of definitional issue. Uh, What is wokeness and why is anti-wokeness important?
1: Uh, That's a great question to kick off with. What is wokeness? I mean, the way I understand wokeness, I mean, wokeness is a quite contested term, and we should be honest about that. Um, In the 1970s in the US, it started off as a term used largely by black activists to describe being socially switched on socially aware um, interested in issues of social justice and so on but i think in recent years woke has really come to mean politically correct so uh, leftists today who consider themselves woke would be very concerned with um, policing language with making sure that everyone spoke in the right words and used the right phrases with making sure that everyone was racially correct and had all the right views on transgenderism and never said anything sexist or never told an off color joke. So I think what's happened with the word woke, it's gone from meaning something fairly positive um, a few decades ago towards meaning something that I think is very negative and very harmful to politics, which is this um, restrictive, uh, intolerant, identitarian form of politics which i think divides people and censors people and gives rise to an unhealthy public culture
0: yeah yeah i mean it it is um it's an interesting journey the way the term has become a pejorative basically i think people them you know even in the recent past i think people positively you know not even going back to the 70s as you mentioned i think just a couple of years ago people might have said you know you know used woke as, as a kind of colloquial cool kind of term but i don't think anybody really identifies it uh, themselves that way anymore
1: is that would, would you agree I think that's right, and it has become a pejorative. I think deservedly so, because I think it speaks to the extent to which the left has lost its way. I think one of the most extraordinary political events of the past few decades was as, is the extent to which the left in the West has lost direction and has abandoned all the principles that it used to hold dear you know the left used to be very interested in universalism and and the universalism of class politics in particular now it has abandoned universalism in favor of the kind of deeply divisive politics of identity where everyone is judged by race and gender and sexuality, which I think is incredibly sectarian. Um, the left used to be in favour of growth, uh, particularly economic growth and, and progress and development and industrialization. Now it has abandoned that in favour of the politics of environmentalism, which is very often quite downbeat about humankind and quite anti-progressive. And of course, the left in the west at least not necessarily in the in the east the left in the west used to believe in freedom of speech and autonomy you know the left used to be quite quite countercultural and they would defend the right of You know, the right to publish homosexual literature or the right to uh, uh, record shocking punk rock songs or the right to make violent horror movies. You know, the left used to be at the forefront of arguing for those rights. And now it has become deeply censorious and deeply keen to, to police language and police culture in particular. And it's constantly looking at culture to see if it measures up to the demands of identity politics and if it doesn't then it's a bad thing and it must be cast out of polite society so th- the thoroughness with which the left has abandoned its old principles and embraced these anti-progressive backward anti-human uh, uh, outlooks i think is ex- is incredible and extraordinary so when i think of wokeness I think that's what it now embodies for me. It embodies a left that has abandoned its you know pretty good principles that it used to hold on to in the past in favor of a new politics which I think is deeply destructive
0: yeah yeah i I definitely um uh sympathize with that, but you know there's on on our network here there's a lot of university um academic listeners many people I, I would imagine who would be very sympathetic to the idea of wokeness and i suppose they would understand it to be you know to, that being woke is is to be in a state of of consciousness of of oppressions and privileges that subjugate others you know and and i think for for these people they they think it you know self-evident that being woke is a good thing even if they might not use the term woke anymore how how would you address these people in good faith as opposed to you know the the people who quite deservedly um need to be ridiculed and shamed
1: i would say that it's it's very possible that their 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 consciousness has become uh, their consciousness as they would see it has become quite debilitating and quite antithetical to open debate about the real problems that we face in society today. So I think, for example, one thing that they would claim to be is, is racially aware. You know, racial awareness is now elevated to this, as this incredibly important value by academics and student activists and others. Um but, I think racial awareness is not a very positive thing because what it often it often grates against what I would consider to be the more progressive worldview, which is the the Martin Luther King worldview, which is that we ought to judge people according to their character rather than their skin color, and that 's what progressive liberal leftish politics used to mean fifty years ago. it meant abandoning. The, the racial goggles through which we had previously viewed humanity in favor of adopting a far a post-racial worldview and a worldview in which color simply did not matter and instead all that mattered is character and belief and, and what you're like as an individual and I think one of the problems with Hyper consciousness or over consciousness or, or certainly with uh, racial consciousness is that it can reintroduce sometimes unwittingly it can reintroduce that that racial prism and that um that invitation to judge people or to view people at least according to their race I, I thought it was very interesting that on in one of the californian universities they were distributing a, a list of racial microaggressions. so these are you know, accidentally racist things that people might say. And one of the racial aggressions is the phrase, um, I don't see race, I just see human beings. And I thought it was very interesting that what would previously have been seen as the the most anti-racist statement you could make, and and it was actually uh, what Martin Luther King said, uh, you know, let's not see race, let's see individuals. That was previously seen as an anti-racist cry, and now it's seen as a racist cry. So I think... This hyper consciousness, this hyper racial awareness has actually rehabilitated racial thinking and created a world in which once again people are being pushed into the biological boxes that they spent so long trying to escape from.
0: Yes, I mean, and and these are such important issues to discuss in good faith, you know, because they, you know, there there can be a good faith argument on both sides. And uh, but the you know as you talk, as you mentioned the the censoriousness the you know the the shutting down of of people you know e- even yourselves you've experienced it at Oxford correct
1: yeah that's right I was um, I was banned from speaking at Oxford in two thousand and fourteen I was due to take part in a debate at Christchurch College Oxford about abortion and I was going to make the pro choice case and another journalist uh, called Timothy Stanley from the Daily Telegraph, he was due to make the pro-life case. And the, the feminist society at Oxford decided that it was unacceptable for two men to discuss abortion. And they said that the debate would make them feel unsafe in their own home. So they were using all this incredibly interesting, I would say, quite Orwellian language. So firstly, they described the entire campus as their home so that you know, me and Timothy speaking in a in a, a, a college hall would be the same as if we were speaking in their private rooms or in their bedroom. And they said that the debate made them feel unsafe. So they had no intention of coming to the debate, but simply knowing that it was taking place would make them feel unsafe and insecure and, and fragile and vulnerable. So uh, it was a very interesting snapshot to me of, of where that kind of Woke politics was going, which is towards this, um, this area of hyper fragility, kind of psychic vulnerability, where you, the individual is, see, is seen as an incredibly fragile creature and words are seen as hurtful and, and uh, destructive and even violent. And it, it was it, what was th- interesting is that this th- these feminists threatened to turn up to the debate with instruments, and, and they didn't mean musical instruments, um, and said that they would force the debate to be shut down. And and shamefully, the Christchurch College authorities kowtowed to these censors to the, to what I would. Describe as a censorious mob, which is essentially what it was, kowtowed to them and, and called the debate off. So th- that's just one example, I think, of of the culture that's been taking hold on campuses in recent years. You know, the, the most common example in the UK right now on campuses is that it's very difficult for feminists to talk openly about transgenderism. And we have a number of feminists in the UK who are quite critical of transgenderism, who do not accept that um trans women are real women they they accept that they are trans women and they refer to them uh, by their female pronouns and so on but they don't accept that they are real women which i think is a legitimate point of view to hold but they are now finding it incredibly difficult to express themselves on on campus and i think what's happening with the incredibly censorious culture that is taking hold on campuses and elsewhere we're really seeing where the logic of censorship ends up. So the left used to call just for the censorship of fascists or people on the hard right, and that has snowballed into a situation where now feminists are censored, um, anyone to the right of politics can be censored, anyone who thinks that Islam, uh, it, it, or who questions Islam too, too vociferously can be censored. So we're, we're witnessing the explosion of the censorious logic courtesy of these woke activists. So I think they've made an incredible mistake by opening the door to more and more censorship.
0: Yeah, I what's, uh, I, I, I totally agree with that. And uh, I think it's very uh, important. And, and that obviously is the impulse behind um, your work. Now, what is very interesting, and I think it would be interesting for the listeners too, is that, you know, while many of these critiques come from the right, uh, um, you are coming from the left of, as, as you've said. Now, I, I don't know if you want to expand on that, but, but I think that is an interesting, uh, theme and an interesting angle. Um, and it, so I, I'd like you, if, if you want to expand on, on that, what, you know, your criticism from the left, and if there's, any kind of story that sort of made you turn from, you know, from perhaps maybe one time being allied and then realized, you know, I've got to kind of attack these people now. You know, I thought they were my friends. Was there any sort of story like that?
1: Um, I think there are are lots of stories like that over the years, but um, you're right. I I come at this from a left-wing perspective. I, I come from a Marxist background, in fact, and the first magazine I wrote for, Years and years ago was called uh, living Marxism, and um, that's that's my background. I still uh, I, I I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Marxist now because I think it's it's an exhausted ideology. But I would definitely call myself someone on the left. And I my view is that this this new woke politics, this new identitarian politics, my view is simply that it's not left wing politics. Uh, I know they call themselves left wing, and I know that. Um, I probably refer to them as the left sometimes too, but fundamentally, this is not left wing politics left wing politics used to be interested in issues of class and um structural barriers to progress and economic growth and 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 those kinds of you know pretty solid substantial uh society wide questions now this this new politics this this pseudo left politics, which is what we really should call it. Is obsessed with infinitesimally minor issues to do with, um, you know, uh, culture, advertising, uh, the relations between racial groups, and so on. It's it's become an incredibly backward and quite conservative outlook it, it presents itself as radical but it has a very conservative instinct in in terms of its desire to censor people and to silence people and to ensure that we all think the same way and think the right way and, and never veer from uh, the accepted path and the accepted truth so um You know, my experience has been that just over the years, bit by bit, I found myself, uh, the way I put it, and it's not my line, it's been used by other people throughout history. um, I didn't leave the left, the left left me. And that's how I see it. I see the left as having gone off in a completely bizarre direction. And then if like me, you stand up for what I would consider to be traditional left-wing values, such as democracy and autonomy and the right of working people to impact on political life and uh, economic growth and um, the expansion of the human footprint so that more and more people enjoy the luxuries that we in, in the Western world enjoy. If you make those kinds of arguments, which I would consider traditional left arguments, you're denounced as right wing, far right, a fascist and so on. So the left, not only has the left lost its way, but it now turns with a vicious censoriousness very often against anyone who tries to assert traditional left wing value. So it's a real right now. The left is a real mess, and I think it needs to have a serious word with itself
0: yeah yeah you know and a lot of your journey has parallels, although I think it's distinct uh from the neoconservatives in the u s particularly who many of whom were former trotskyites and i believe living living marxism that you wrote for was a trotskyite um, uh journal as well if i'm not if i'm not mistaken and um and they uh sometime in the sixties or seventies uh turned away from uh marxism and you know and I suppose created this neoconservative ideology, and uh, I think uh, Potteritz was the one who started it and, and said uh, you know, uh, a neoconservative is a, a, a liberal mugged by reality. If, if I'm not mistaken, that was his famous phrase. But uh, yeah, but um, yeah, it, it sounds very similar. Although it's, I think yours is is substantially different in terms of its commitment you know just on your podcast which i would also recommend to our listeners to to look at your spiked um, podcast uh, a couple of the recent episodes um, you have some very interesting titles that are connected to this very theme you're talking about you know wokeness is elitism masquerading as compassion and the left has turned its back on the working class you want to expand on that for us?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's one of the fundamental problems about where so-called left politics is at right now. Um, you know, uh, on on the point you made there, I, 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 of course, I would I would distinguish myself from from the neoconservatives in, in the sense that I wouldn't describe myself as as a conservative, but we both do come from both me and and some of those neoconservatives come from a Trotskyite background, which I actually think is a very useful background to come from, to be honest, because Mm -hmm. um, the the fascinating thing about Trotskyism, of course, is that it was implacably opposed to Stalinism. So it was incredibly sceptical of the Soviet Union, which meant being sceptical of the authoritarianism and the horrors of life in the Soviet Union, and and of censorship, and of um, the imprisonment of one's opponents, and all those things that uh, the Soviet Union embodied. The interesting thing about Trotskyists, which is why some old Trotskyists often find um, common cause with um, you know kind of liberal uh, American liberals or British liberals, is because both were united by a kind of di- uh, sense of disgust for the Soviet Union. So it's a it's a very interesting, useful, quite uh, liberatory tradition to come from uh, precisely because it was so opposed to Stalinism, whereas a lot of the left in the UK and across Europe, in fact, comes from the Stalinist tradition. So the Communist Party of Great Britain, for example, where lots of journalists and uh, activists cut their teeth in the 70s and the 80s, that was a pro-Soviet Union party for quite a long time, even after the horrors of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, which for many other people was the turning point, the moment in which they abandoned the Soviet Union once and for all. Um, so that's a very interesting history. But I think, yes, what's one of the key problems with the left now, I think it's it goes even further than then them having abandoned the working class. I think they've turned against the working class. I think much of the left now looks upon the working class with uh, at least disappointment and sometimes contempt. And you see that in the US as well as in the UK, um in the uk i think it's expressed very well by the corbynista left which is the left that gathers around labour leader jeremy corbyn they see themselves as very radical but in my view they have an incredibly intolerant And snobbish attitude towards ordinary working class people. Uh, They don't understand why so many working class people voted to leave the European Union. They don't understand why so many working class people abandoned the Labour Party in our general election in December, and voted for Boris Johnson's Tory party, many of them for the first time ever. They don't understand any of this, and so their instinct is just to say, "Well, these people must be racist. That they've been, they've, their brains have been destroyed by the tabloid newspapers and the mass media. They've been turned into stupid little robots, and and they've lost their way." So, they have that very contemptuous attitude, and I think we've seen something similar from East Coast liberals and East Coast lefties in the U.S. who look upon working class people who voted for Trump as as class traitors or as stupid or as being um, brainwashed by Fox News. So I think we're in a serious situation at the moment, which is not only has the left lost sight of what it means to be interested in working-class politics, not only has it lost connection with the working classes and become an increasingly upper-middle-class political movement, but I think it now increasingly defines itself against the working class and sees them as the barrier to progress and I think it's really worth just taking on board what a profound shift that is in the whole nature of the left.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's, it. it's an incredible thing where the working class was the, the privileged uh, social group. Uh, I mean, everything was based on it to now that they're like the enemy. Uh, you know, uh, George Galloway's Workers' Party of Britain recently launched, it seems to have a, a similar perspective. Uh, what's your take on that?
1: I think there were there were well, there are lots of experiments going on at the moment in relation to um left-wing politics in the in the UK. There are lots of interesting movements. Um I think George Galloway is a very interesting voice on all of these issues uh in in relation to class and so on. I think the blue labor movement is called blue labor because it's a part of the labor party but it's called blue because it tends towards conservatism rather than radicalism. In the UK, blue is conservative and red is Labour. So there's the Blue Labour movement, and there are lots of, and and there's also the Social Democrat Party, um, the Social Democrats, as they're called, which is a very interesting left leaning party, which is very pro working class, socially conservative, very pro Brexit, and so on. So some of that's happening, but the problem is that those very interesting democratic left wing voices have been drowned out by. The drift of the uh, left towards the very divisive, navel-gazing, censorious politics of identity, and that's the kind. That's what passes for left-wing politics now on campuses and in the Guardian newspaper and in much of public life. So when I find myself debating left-wing individuals on uh, in the media or, or in a public debate. I usually find myself up against someone who is um, obsessed with trans issues and obsessed with racial issues and is uh, concerned to censor problematic voices. And uh, that's now what the left has come to symbolise. And I think it's a real shame because historically speaking, and I know much more about the British case than other countries, but historically speaking, the left emerged precisely as a means of giving a voice to working people, That's the history in the UK right from um, the Peterloo massacre in 1819 when working men and women and children marched for the right to vote in Manchester and they were cut down by the yeomanry who were waving their swords and they killed 15 people right from 1819 through to the Chartists in the 1840s and right through to the Suffragettes in the 1910s who may have been led by middle-class women but had a great amount of support among working-class women. All of these um, movements were about bringing in new voices to democratic politics and particularly allowing ordinary people to have the equal right, as it happens, the the equal right to rich people and posh people to, to vote and to determine who should govern the country. And I think what happened with Brexit and the extraordinary middle-class backlash against Brexit that we saw over the past three and a half years is that the right of ordinary people to shape political life has been explicitly called into question by the elites, by the woke left, by the the, uh, liberal establishment and so on, uh, who basically said, you're all so stupid and racist for voting for Brexit and therefore we're not going to allow Brexit to happen. So we've just lived through a very clear example in the UK of the extent to which the left establishment has turned against ordinary people, so much so that they even want to undermine ordinary people's right to vote. So we're living in scary times politically, and I think it's really worth um, just thinking and, and considering what values are at stake if we allow this woke left politics to go too far.
0: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Um, in, in, an interesting aspect of your work and your career is that you've been, you know, writing in the UK, in the US, in Australia. So you kind of have a, a global sense of this wokeness. You know, usually people are confined to one national space. Do do you think that there's a a geography of wokeness? Is, is there a difference between um different types of wokeness? Have you noticed anything like that?
1: That's very interesting. I think. Um yeah in the uh, i mainly move in the kind of Anglo-sphere. so uh, parts of the world that are you know for historical reasons are are linked to the uk or were definitely heavily influenced by the in, by the uk um and i do think wokeness has taken hold in much of the anglosphere i think in the uk it's very prominent i think in australia it's incredibly prominent but the fascinating thing about australia is that there is still a kind of larrikin culture they refer to it as larrikinism which is the kind of um a, 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 an instinctive australian suspicion of authority which some people argue comes from um the convicts who were shipped out there and who were often tasked with building new towns and 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 new, new communities who brought with them a kind of um an instinctive hostility towards uh the powers that be but Whatever the cause of it is, there is a very healthy, sceptical, working class culture in um, Australia, which I find interesting, which makes uh, the woke lobby's life a bit more difficult. Uh, D.H. Lawrence wrote about this when D.H. Lawrence visited Australia. He wrote a book about Australia called uh, Kangaroo, and he wrote about the very proletarian nature of life in Australia and and the way in which no one really rules. And, And those who think they do rule are often going to get their comeuppance so australia is interesting because the wokeness is very pronounced there but it's it's grating up against a a quite solid working class culture i think in the us it's interesting too because wokeness is incredibly powerful especially among the new millennial generation especially within academic circles and in some of the media as well but it has to reckon with vast swathes of the country who are deeply skeptical of it and in fact there was a poll last year i think which demonstrated that vast numbers of working americans are hostile towards political correctness and don't think it's right to shut people down because they hold certain views and uh, interestingly very large numbers of, of black and hispanic people are suspicious of political correctness so uh, and it's the same in the uk and 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 the brexit battle really captured this beautifully because on one side, we had a kind of increasingly technocratic, illiberal elite who wanted to outsource our democratic rights to Brussels and who wanted to silence anyone who criticised that process as a Europhobe. You know, if you criticise the European Union, apparently you're a Europhobe. So on one side, we have that establishment. And on the other side, we saw a very healthy revolt against that. 17.4 million people who voted for Brexit and in the process of voting for Brexit, called into question technocracy, managerialism, political correctness, and all the values of the new establishment. So what I find fascinating about those three countries in particular, of which I have a little bit of knowledge, is is that wokeness is, is growing and is a deep problem, but there is a pushback coming from substantial sections of society. And I think there's something very, very positive in that pushback
0: yeah definitely and you know i'm just in trying to apply you know marxist modes of thinking to analyzing wokeness you know i i'm wondering if there's a core and a periphery you know it, there's a law of uneven development apply here you know it is i think some people might think that you know it's an american export or, or an ivy league export but but yeah, what's your view
1: you want that's a, that's really interesting i often think about that i mean i i do think you, you know the cliche is that all these things kick off in California or somewhere, and then they spread across America, and then they get to the UK, and then eventually they get to Australia. Uh, they have a bit more trouble in Europe because of the, ver- the you know, vastly different cultures and traditions and languages that exist in Europe. Uh, but that's that's seen as the that's the cliched view. I think there's an element of truth in it, but I think it's far too simplistic. And I think uh, in relation to your question about the geography of wokeness. I think wokeness takes different forms in different countries, and and different issues will come to the surface depending on the country that you're in. So, I think very interesting differences between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia are uh, in the U.S. I think wokeness very often um, revolves around questions of race. And questions of white privilege in particular, which I think is a fairly nonsense idea, white privilege and, and black victimhood t- tend to make up the core of the woke agenda in, in parts of the U.S., which is an understandable um, development from a country that has had numerous racial problems over the centuries, Um in the UK right now, the the flash we, we have the discussion about white privilege and and uh, racial history and the history of empire, and the woke lobby very often talks about those issues and tries to claim that Britain is an inherently racist country. So that's there, but but the flashpoint issue is very often around sex and gender, um, and transgenderism in particular, which is is the biggest flashpoint issue in the UK right now. It's it's, it's extraordinary which i think speaks possibly to the freshness of the struggle for women's rights in the uk so lots of feminists feel lots of feminists are pushing back against the woke agenda because they feel um that the transgender idea is undermining women's rights and women's spaces and then in australia the key i think one of the key clashes of wokeness is in relation to climate change and the environmental question which again makes perfect sense because In the cities in australia in in melbourne and sydney and among uh, particularly melbourne which is like a hotbed of wokeness um they're very green they're very climate aware they're very anti-coal they're very anti um industry but then of course there are vast swathes of australia uh, particularly in queensland where uh tens of thousands of people make a good living from coal and a proud living from uh, industry and who have a very strong sense of being decent working class people. So they push back really strongly against the the woke promotion of the idea of a kind of cl- a climatic apocalypse. So all of these themes, I think, are expressed in these three countries in one way or another, but I find it, I find it fascinating in relation to the geography of wokeness that depending on which country you're in, depending on what the country's history is, and depending on the kind of um, the class divisions and the geographical divisions in that country, the question of what comes to the fore is, is, is different for each country.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, when you're you know, speaking there, I was thinking about the phenomenon myself. And it probably has something to do with the nature of urbanism in each country, because I think wokeness is, is definitely an urban phenomenon, both an urban and I suppose a university phenomenon. Um, and maybe that I, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking aloud, but that it's something that's probably connected deeply to that. What do
1: you yeah, think? I think that's right, actually. And I think university, it, it, it plays a big role in all of this. You know, my view is that lots of millennials in particular are slightly overeducated and I, I don't mean they're over knowledgeable. I think knowledge is a wonderful thing and the more of it we can get the better, but they're overeducated in the sense of having spent rather too long, in universities which are often actually quite hostile to open debate and hostile to intellectual experimentation. And it's often at universities these days, particularly um, what we refer to in the UK as Russell Group universities or what they refer to in the US as Ivy League universities, the kind of top universities. Those are often the universities at which um, new orthodoxies are most um, enthusiastically enforced, you know, via cultural studies and media studies and queer studies and even in the humanities more broadly so i think a lot of um a a lot of that uh, universities definitely play a role in cultivating wokeness depending on the region that you're in and uh that i think is quite a significant player
0: yeah you know um This whole PC, um, you know, battle has been going on for decades. Um, And in the 1990s, Camille Paglia was at the forefront. There's a lot about you that reminds me of her as well. I don't know if she was an influence at all on you.
1: Yes. But uh, she,
0: yeah, she, um, um, lectures at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, she, you know, after having so much trouble getting into the Ivy Leagues, and she just decided to to go to teach working class, uh, you know, students. And and she's got some very interesting observations about how among, you know, working class um, young women, feminism holds no truck. Uh, Among working class blacks, all these uh, racist, um, you know, or Or you know black consciousness uh things just seems like a, a load of rubbish uh to a lot of these people it's It's very uh funny her observations yeah do you have anything uh,
1: yeah i I that? think she's absolutely right on that, and I think that there's a similar situation in the u k where uh it, I, I, my view is that there's a strong class dynamic in a lot of woke politics, and these you know the, the, the these so called woke views these quite authoritarian politically correct views are are strongly held. By very well-educated, quite upper-middle-class people, but they're not strongly held at all, and in fact, they're often ridiculed and questioned by by working-class people, and and that's one of the most interesting divides. Um, and I think it's a very healthy divide, and it's one that I would be quite keen to exploit. I would like a, a clearer, uh, uh, you know, more open, more full-throated pushback against some of these minority beliefs that are 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 only held by relatively small numbers of people, but are are nonetheless very influential in political life, very influential in popular culture, and very influential in politics. But yes, you know, Camille Paglia's point about um, working-class women having no truck with uh, lots of modern feminism, I think that's very true. One there have been lots of surveys in the uk about the cultural differences between brexit voters and remain voters so between ordinary people who voted to leave the eu and people who voted to stay in the eu and for me one of the most fascinating differences is that people who voted brexit are are less likely to think that wolf whistling should be criminalized than people who voted remain who are slightly more likely to think that wolf whistling should be criminalised. And I just thought it was out of all the different cultural divides, I thought that was such a fascinating one because, you know, there are many, many people out there who don't think that being wolf whistled at is the worst thing that can ever happen, who don't think it's proof that they live in an oppressive patriarchal society, who may even take it as a compliment, who may even welcome it. But the, the problem is that those voices are so... Uh, silence these days that that even for me to say that, even for me to suggest that there will be some some women who aren't offended by wolf whistling is seen as a bad thing to say. So there are deep, deep cultural and political and moral divides in our society. The trouble right now is that what I would view as the more sensible, open minded, um, post racial uh, divide is the w- side of this divide, is the one that's not be- getting enough of a hearing. And I think the more movements and institutions and podcasts like this and, and, and other outlets through which they can be given a hearing, through which that dissenting view can be expressed, I think is incredibly important.
0: Yeah. I mean, and just, you know, you, you broaching that very dangerous um, point of view uh, it 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 illustrates, you know, your your career of of writing. It it's not just in this book anti woke, and 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 you do it with a lot of uh, of humor and wit, and you know, I you you tackle subjects like Brexit, uh, Megan and Harry, and environmentalism, anti whiteness, and I I love some of your, of your titles. Let me let the listeners hear some of them. You know, Katy Perry's hair. um... Bloody White People, Osama the Environmentalist, The Glamour of Trauma, uh, Sexual McCarthyism, A Manifesto for Heresy, uh, The Ayatollah's Victory, uh, Gay Capitalism, <laughs> Woke Monarchy, uh, The Fury of the Elites. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love those titles. Uh, do you, I, 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 see, I see a lot of Paglia. kitchens. Orwell, uh, I I I see a lot of them in in your right. Are, are these? Uh, do you see these people as role models, or is it just um, uh, is it something I'm seeing?
1: No, I, I think that that's incredibly flattering. Thank you very much. I I see uh, Orwell. Orwell in particular is one of my uh, heroes. I, I was a, also a big admirer of Hitchens. Um, and Camille Paglia i is i think uh, a goddess essentially in in modern public life um so yes uh, i've been influenced by all those people and i think they are incredibly important voices and it's what's interesting about the current culture we live in is that it's um it, you know there it's such a stifling culture in many ways and it can it feels very very restrictive and you know things that would have been perfectly normal to say Ten or fifteen years ago, have suddenly become speech crimes, uh, to use a an Orwellian phrase. So, for example, ten years ago, if you said there are men and women, and one cannot become the other, that's just the way it is. People would have accepted that as a simple biological truth. Now, if you say that, it's transphobia. You know, fifteen years ago, if you had said that marriage is for men and women, and it's it's an institution of procreation largely. That would have been accepted as as the normal way of viewing things now if you say that it's homophobia and if you are chick-fil-a you will be boycotted and closed down because the owner of chick-fil-a has dared to express support for the traditional view of marriage you know a few years ago it would have been seen as fine to criticize religion and in fact it was a hard-won liberty to criticize religion and to dissent from religious orthodoxy now in europe in particular if you criticize Islam too harshly, you are Islamophobic. So I'm interested in the way in which all these, um, the, the word phobia is now used in the in the way that the word heresy was once used. They, they, it's used to demonize certain ideas and certain beliefs. And, uh, and uh, you know, we've seen a situation where people have actually been arrested in Europe and in some cases fined for expressing uh, strong criticism of Islam in particular. So, That's deeply concerning, and the reason I I mention that in this context of this question is because, of course, Orwell and also Hitchens uh, much later on both wrote about the deeply problematic nature of censorship and self-censorship, and Orwell wrote brilliantly about what happens when the intellectual elite itself abandons the idea of freedom of speech. And what does happen when that when that takes place is that public debate becomes virtually impossible. And people are demonized and subjected to two minutes hate and silenced through all these kind of pejorative words simply for expressing what had previously, very recently, been seen as a as, as an acceptable truth. So we're living through something very similar now. And I think there is such a big open space. For voices similar to Hitchens and similar to Orwells and similar to Camille Paglia's to come through and to say, "Listen, this is what I consider to be the truth, and I'm going to express it regardless of what you say about me,
0: yeah, and you know um as you you mentioned the phenomenon of like phobia right how they turn everything into a phobia it's it, it uh, I suppose speaking to you with the kind of uh the, the kind of intra communist um you know, Stalinist versus Trotskyist thing it actually reminded me of you know in in the Soviet Union and also in Mao uh, Mao's China uh, you know, political dissent was seen as a mental illness and it's the same thing isn't it
1: absolutely i think there is there are real commonalities between the way in which we're witnessing the pathologization of certain political viewpoints or certain dissenting viewpoints so we see it in relation to climate change you know you're a climate change denier i've seen people i've seen leading environmentalists writing about the psychological disorder of when mass society refuses to believe that it's under threat from climate change Um, so they see that as having psychological components and of course as you say the phobia tag a a phobia is is a is an is a mental disorder It's it's an irrational fear and the way in which that gets a, a, attached to various political viewpoints or dissenting viewpoints, I think, is incredibly interesting. And the Soviet Union had a similar approach. I actually think, you know, without wanting, wishing to be overly relativistic, because I don't think what we're living through in the West is in any way comparable to the horrors of Mao's China. But some of the some of the ideas from Mao's China, I do think, are finding expression in woke politics, particularly uh, the the kind of um, intergenerational strife, the way in which the younger generation thinks the older generation are backward and stupid and problematic and and need to be corrected or need to be re-educated, the way in which there is extraordinary intolerance in universities for the older ways of thinking for the Enlightenment ways of thinking or whatever else it might be, I think a lot of that echoes the um, cultural revolution in Mao's China and the way in which younger people in particular were charged with punishing and exposing and ridiculing uh, professors and older generations and their own parents. And I definitely see echoes of that uh, blinkered youthful intolerance in some of the ways in which millennial activists behave today.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Now, but there's something um, very strange that's happening in the U.S. with the Bernie Sanders thing, though. I I don't know if you're aware of. uh, Now, this is extremely topical, which we 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 try to be a bit more, you know, um, uh, not uh, so tied to the moment and on NBN, but but I I will defy that a little bit here. Something been trending for the uh, past week or so on Twitter, Um, the OK Boomer. Uh, anime girl dance rap you, you're aware of that yeah and so she's wearing a sanders shirt, a bernie sanders top uh for listeners who don't know and and there's this um you know uh, a song uh okay boomer and and she's sort of making fun of boomers for criticizing bernie sanders uh, so it, it's it's funny because it's kind of uh, Sanders is seen as as a progressive, more hard left, and um, it is so so it's kind of like using the the woke I don't know tropes, okay, boomer. But for su- supporting a more traditional leftism that might be more in alignment with with your view, what what do you think of that?
1: Uh, that uh, that's a really good question, and I've I followed the OK boomer thing quite closely over the past few months, and partic- and this recent incarnation of it too. And I think it's it actually sums up the kind of uh, a lot of the problem with the, that youthful woke approach to politics, which is very often anti old people, anti middle aged people, and so on. Um, But in relation to the Bernie Sanders thing, I just think there's a deep, profound contradiction at the heart of the Bernie Sanders movement, which is that my view, my generous view, um, is that Bernie Sanders is a pretty traditional leftist. I think he's primarily interested in class politics he used to hold some very interesting views. He used to be a very strong left-wing critic of open borders, for example. And he used to say that um, open borders is a right-wing idea and and the left is more interested in protecting the nation and the nation's workers and their working standards. So he used to have that view, which he's now changed quite, uh, 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 radically. Uh, he he used to be in favor of industrialization and growth and, and job provision. Job provision was his big rallying cry. Now he wants to ban fracking. He wants to shut down various uh, so-called climate unfriendly industries, which I think massively turns off working communities because so many people in the US make their living from fracking and they recognize that it also assists with keeping energy bills down. So I think the great tragedy with Bernie Sanders and and the boomer stuff and and the woke people I think Bernie is unwisely bending to the woke agenda. I think um he is accepting too much of the woke agenda. He's he's falling slightly into the identitarian politics and the green politics. And I I would say that in in the woke world those two spheres in particular, identity politics and, wo- and green politics, are the ones that grate most with working people because working people recognize that identity politics is very atomizing and individualistic, whereas working class people tend to be more interested in solidarity and strong communities and strong neighbors and so on. And they're suspicious of green politics because it's very often an attack on jobs and living standards. And if you work in the coal industry in Australia or in the fracking industry in the US or in um, a factory in the UK, then uh, these very young, woke people who've had a very nice upbringing, they're just not going to convince you when they say, we need to shut your industry down. So Bernie, I think with his He's flirting rather too much with identity politics, and he's flirting far too much with green politics. And I think we're witnessing his surrender to the woke left, which I think is a great shame.
0: Yeah, it, you know, I read through some of your uh, titles in in the piece, you, and um, you know, they they come from various publications and whatnot. Do you have uh, any particular standout
1: favorites among them? Oh, wow, that's a good good question. Um, I like the, the, the glamour of trauma, I think. Uh, I'm quite proud of that title, and I think that's quite uh, it's quite a good piece because that piece is really, it's about a very, uh, another key element of the kind of woke agenda, which is the politics of victimhood and the way in which, um, you know, 50 years ago or whatever, it, 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 radicals would have emphasised autonomy and the right of people to live freely and to to, to determine their destinies for themselves and for their own families and for their own communities without too much intervention from the powers that be, whether that be politicians, princes, bureaucrats or whatever. And one of the key things about woke politics is this cultivation of a sense of victimhood. I'm a victim of everything. Words hurt me. History hurts me. The suffering of my ancestors 300 years ago weighs on me like a ton of bricks. There's this constant desire to depict yourself as fragile and vulnerable and, and in need of assistance, uh, in need of validation, and in, in, in need of support from the authorities, whether it's the university authorities or, or the state authorities. And I think that grates so fundamentally against the principles of liberty. And the principles of liberty have got to be based upon a sense that individuals are free-willed and pretty strong-willed and capable of self-government. Uh, that, you know, liberalism used to be about self-government and now increasingly it's about self-negation, self-negation and, and denying the strength of your own self in order to fit into a culture that valorizes victimhood above all else.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of allied in some way to the nanny state, isn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. And the nanny state, I think there's a there's a symbiotic relationship between um the, the woke lobby's cultivation of uh, of the cult of victimhood and the growth of the nanny state i think they feed off each other and uh, i just think a bit more self-respect a bit more self-drive a bit more uh desire for self-government would be far preferable to this kind of uh self-flagellating culture of victimhood which i think is very demeaning both for the individual and for society more broadly mm-hmm
0: and I mean, this uh, your collection was compiled two years ago, and some of the um, essays were from 2017. Do, do you think that um, a lot has changed o- over the time of publication? Do you think some of your essays are perhaps even now more important uh, today than they were when you published them?
1: Yeah, I think uh, things have changed. I think in some ways things are getting better and in other ways they're getting worse. I think they're getting better in the sense that, as I was saying earlier, I do think there's a democratic pushback against this stuff. I do think there's a populist pushback. I know populism is a dirty word, but in my view it's not a dirty word. It, It simply means a popular expression, a popular disapproval with the way in which politics is going. And I think popular things are often very good. Um so there's a populist populist pushback around the Western world, I think, and I think all of that is positive and very heartening and I think uh brexit's a good example of that, where you know millions and millions of British people did the thing they were not supposed to do. they voted to break away from the european union and and in the process, they unraveled British politics as it has it had existed for forty or fifty years, so that's all quite exciting, quite radical, quite dangerous and and very very interesting. But then I think things are getting worse in the sense that in response to those developments, that the woke lobby is doubling down and is really uh, gathering behind the trenches and, and in trying to embolden itself. And so its poli- its language has become, even, uh, even since 2017, its language has become more intemperate, more intolerant, more accusatory. So everyone's a racist now, Um, America is turning into a fascist state, Uh, Brexit will bring about the end of the world, Europe is overrun by modern-day Hitlers and jackboots. I mean, they really are are taking a, a, a quite hysterical view of where things are going, and that's having a destructive impact on reasoned public debate and on open free debate. So the good thing is one step forward and two steps back. It's one step forward in the sense that ordinary people are saying, you know, we've had enough of this nonsense now. We want something new and different. But it's two steps back in the sense that the woke lobby still is very influential in political and public life. And their their politics is becoming even more eccentric, more shut off from ordinary concern, people's concerns and more censorious. So I still think we have our work cut out for us in defending the values of enlightenment, reason, truth, and freedom.
0: Yeah. I'm, you know, I, um, in, in the nineties, I was in my twenties and a grad student and then later a lecturer and stuff. And, and, you know, the, I was very much, you know, um, taken up with the debates and PC culture and all that, uh, at that time. And, you know, by the end of the 90s, uh, I I thought that, you know, uh, the side I was on, I, 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 which is more like the Camille Paglia side, you know, won, you know, and, and that all, all, the, all the culture wars and stuff were finished, that, that the sort of excesses of the left and, and or, or excesses of the PC people were finally seen through and Bill Maher's show did his job and, 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 and everything was done. And then, the war on terror went and, and, and all that PC stuff was forgotten. And then all of a sudden the exact same debates are are live now. And I mean, you you could just go back to read, you know, Camille Paglia's, the things on date rape and and it's it's as if it never, ever happened. And, and I'm, I'm just wondering what, what, um, you know, what what's is it just a pendulum swinging or I mean and, and you know there, there are all sorts of you've mentioned it in anti woke all the internal contradictions like in women lie you you talk about Emmett Till right so so there's the whole you know uh, the contradiction between the race and and the feminism and and um, and then the the exaggerations which you just mentioned and the backlash against these um, these exaggerations and um, I don't know where. It, it, are there natural limits to wokeness that it will go back, uh, you know, be be pulled back? Uh, what, what's your thinking on this?
1: I, I think that's a really good point, particularly about the 1990s. And and because uh, I, I noticed something similar. And when I speak to people who were engaged in pushing back against political correctness in that decade in particular, they often say something similar to what, what you've said, which is that they thought they'd won and they thought political correctness had been put to bed and then suddenly it bursts back onto the scene a a few years later in in an even more virulent form. Um, That's very interesting and and I think you're right, Camille Paglia was doing that in the 90s, Uh, Hitchens was doing it, there's there's also fascinating voices like Nadine Strossen, who was the president of the American Civil Liberties Union who was a critic of censorious feminism, she did great work in the 90s, Wendy Kaminer, who's a civil libertarian in the US who was stingingly critical of the more censorious, divisive wing of, of feminism and other forms of identitarianism. So a lot of these people made a great, put up a good fight in the 90s. But the way I see it, looking back and just thinking about the history of it, is that I think they won some battles, but they lost the war. And I I think it's possible that some, not necessarily those individuals I've just named, but I think it's possible that some people in the 90s underestimated the the roots of this thing and the depth of it and and the extent to which it wasn't simply a a new speech code or a new political code, but this whole political correctness thing was built upon the collapse over a couple of decades of, you know, the values of reason and truth and enlightenment and, and, you know, those properly progressive values had been actually falling apart for quite a long time and political correctness filled the space and was able to build itself up precisely because of the weakness of those things. So I think there was an element where knocking down the excesses of political correctness took the place of building up the values of in, of enlightenment thinking and so there's it's very important to knock down the excesses of pc and it's very and it's good fun to knock down the excesses of pc but unless we build up the far more uh, healthy reasoned culture of open debate and truth seeking and rigorous intellectual experimentation uh, i think we'll only get so far and um I think what's, uh, but I think what's positive now, and I think this is, I spoke about this in in Washington D.C. at a at a Liberty Con conference um, a couple of years ago. I said what's interesting now. In the '90s, the pushback largely came from um, critical academics and critical journalists, and as you say, people like Bill Maher and, and those kinds of people led the pushback. What's interesting now is the pushback is far wider and far larger, and it's coming from millions upon millions of ordinary people and we see that across the western world and that I think is going to be a far more difficult for the uh, the new elites to deal with and so I think w- the 90s was very interesting because a few brilliant blows were struck against the culture of political correctness and the culture of censorship I think what's happening now in the 2020s is 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 more important because a far more profound existential blow is being landed by ordinary people who are disobediently voting against those old establishments, against that, that, that kind of technocratic, stiff, bureaucratic, censorious politics and opening up the possibility for a new kind of political life. So I find that very exciting. I wish more anti-woke people could see the value in democratic dissent, because I do think among some anti-woke activists or or speakers and so on, there is a a slight tendency to be sceptical of ordinary people. I think they should ditch that scepticism and really welcome this massive democratic pushback that we're witnessing against all the horrible politics that has taken hold in the West over recent years.
0: Yeah, I, um, I, I think that's a great point you're making. Um, because that um, political aspect wasn't around in the 1990s, in terms of I, I, and where you had the you know the victories that um, that Brexit and Trump represent, um, which which I think many listeners might cringe um, to hear me say, um, but I, I know you've taken um, the the Brexit issue um, in many, you've explored it in many many uh, different directions, both in the book and and in your podcasts. Um, uh, g- g- why don't you uh, expand on that here a little? Because I think it, it illustrates what you're saying very um, strongly. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, I. Uh, you know, my view is that Brexit is an is an unalloyed good. I think it is just incredibly positive. Um, I think you're right to say Brexit and Trump in the same breath, but uh, Trump is a lot more complicated because. The great thing about Brexit is that we weren't voting for an individual, we weren't voting for a party, we were voting for an idea, which is that um, decision-making in the UK should be done in the UK. Uh, And if you look at the poll that was done on the day of the Brexit vote itself, there was a poll of people who voted leave. As they were leaving the ballot box, uh, they were asked, why did you vote leave? And the number one reason people gave is because they think the laws that British people have to live by should be made in Britain. And that is the fundamental essence of democracy. So it was very clearly a vote for uh, the re energizing of democracy. So it was a vote for an idea. It wasn't a vote for um, a policy agenda or an individual or a political party. It was a vote to re enliven politics. So I just think it's incredibly positive. I think Trump is driven, the vote for Trump was driven by similar. A sense of disgruntlement against many ordinary Americans. But the Trump phenomenon is more complicated because he's an individual, he's got policies, some of them are good, some of them are terrible. And he's a very, very controversial figure. And he's done lots of things. I Highly, highly disapprove of. Um, so he's more complicated, but I think he he does speak to the same populist dynamic and the same urge amongst ordinary people to kick back against an establishment that had become contemptuous of them and had become increasingly illiberal and and unreasoned. So the way I see Brexit is that it is, I think it's like a global rallying cry. And when I've been to Australia over the past couple of years everyone I speak to wants to talk about Brexit. In the US, people talk to me about Brexit all the time. And of course, Trump alluded to Brexit when he talked about the Brexit states, you know, those states that would potentially vote for him instead of voting for the Democrats as they normally do. So I do think, and in Europe, uh, where there are many, many people who would like to have the opportunity to vote out of the European Union, Brexit is, is the number one talking point. So I think it's very interesting that this, you know, this little democratic revolution that has taken place in the United Kingdom has kind of echoed around the world. And I think that's because there is an appetite among so many people today to call into question politics as it currently exists, to call into question the rule of these illiberal, identitarian, uh, the the new establishment, as we might call them. There is such an appetite to call that into question that people are, are latching on in a very positive way To any expression of dissent against those people, and I think Brexit is really at the forefront of that. Right.
0: Well, after to kind of you know move towards a summary, after reading your book, what message uh, did you want to leave your readers with, or or even the listeners right now?
1: Um, a positive one, I hope. Uh, I think there's lots of negative stuff happening at the moment, and I think lots of politics is quite. Uh, uh, negative and censorious and shrill and um, apocalyptic and and anti-human. I think there's a great deal of misanthropy in the woke agenda. You can see it in everything from their obsession with race because they have this presumption that we're all racist at heart, and they have to manage the relations between different racial groups. That so that's quite a misanthropic view of human beings. You can see it in the climate change obsession, which I think is driven by a, a, a disdain for the ideas of progress and growth and 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 human exploration and 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 so on. So there's a lot of misanthropy, lots of negativity, but I would just counter it with the with the positive case, and I think there's so many reasons to be positive right now. Uh, Human life is improving. Um, Life expectancy has been improving. People desire uh, choice and liberty. People want more democracy. People people are developing a real sense of themselves and of their own communities' interests and their own nation's interests against the political establishment that had become quite technocratic and globalist over the past five or six decades, really, in the post-war period. So... We should be positive. We're living through a pushback against some pretty bad political ideas. And I think the space is being opened up for a more lively, honest, democratic debate. And I think academics and uh, millennials and other people should not be scared of that. They should welcome it. Because I think in that open space, we can really start to hammer out what values we consider to be important. I would say those values should be universalism, the idea that what humans have in common is more interesting than what divides them, Uh, reason, we should apply moral reason to every issue and try to think things through in a reasoned, measured way, and most importantly, freedom, the freedom to speak, the freedom to think, uh, the freedom to organise, the freedom to associate. Freedom is so essential to democratic life, It's so essential to public life, and it's so essential to individual self-enrichment. And I think that's the thing that the woke lobby in particular does not understand, just the essential nature of freedom to having a good life. And so the more we can say in this new opened up era, the more we can say in defense of freedom, particularly the freedom to speak, I think that will be very, very positive.
0: I, I think that's an excellent message there. Do you have any upcoming books or speaking tours or anything like that you'd like to let listeners know about?
1: Um, No upcoming books at the moment. Um, I'm always speaking somewhere or other. Um, uh, uh, One thing I'm going to be doing is coming to the U.S. rather soon to do a series of podcasts. So I agree with you that people should listen to my podcast and um, I'm coming to the U.S. to do a series of interviews because I really think, as I was saying, there's such an opportunity now for people to seize seize the chance for free frank open progressive debate and i hope to be doing a bit of that with my podcast in the us uh, as well as in the uk so um in terms of upcoming things i would absolutely encourage people to read spiked every day and i would encourage people to listen to our podcasts because we are trying to create that space for a politics, which is just very pro-human, very pro-democratic and very pro-freedom. It's, it's such an important thing to do right now, which is to open up the possibilities for debate instead of shutting them down.
0: Right. And, and they can find your, your, um, the publication and the podcast in the same site.
1: Yep. www.spiked-online.com. That's where Spiked Magazine lives, and all our podcasts and videos and articles and essays are on there, so they can find them very, very easily. We publish every single day. My podcast comes out uh, once a fortnight, and uh, we have have other podcasts too. And uh, it's just that there are so many riches that they will have plenty of time to explore, so I encourage them to visit our site.
0: Great. Thanks so much for this very enjoyable and informative interview. And I encourage again, all our listeners to get a copy of Anti-Woke and, and check out Spiked Online. It's been a pleasure, Brendan. Thank you, Kirk. I've enjoyed it very much. That's all for new books in politics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic, that wants to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.